Hello, and welcome to Agents of Nonprofits. My name is Tim Lockie, and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Joining me today is Alexander Lapa to talk about what it's like to be a Salesforce architect for nonprofits and a podcast host. Alex, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Tim. So for those people who are trying to figure out what the heck is going on, Tim and I had a conversation about a week ago where I was explaining to him that this is going to be, or the 50th episode of the podcast is coming up. And he asked me, you know, what do, you, what do I have planned? I had a couple of ideas, but nothing really interesting. And Tim proposed, why don't we flip the script? Why don't we make you the guest and someone else the host and ask you questions and learn a bit about the host and, you know, what you do? And I said, great, Tim, that's a fantastic idea. I'll do it, but only if you agree to be the host. Tim said, sure, with pleasure. And here we are today. So... Tim, please take it away from. Yeah, thank you. And let me just start with 50 episodes is such an accomplishment. I've done a couple of podcasts and it is, it's a big number. So congratulations. It shows such a dedication and, and you're, you really care about the craft of podcasting. I know that I know it from your, your podcast and even just in the prep with you. So that's amazing work. I know my first question to you, and I'm guessing that your listeners as well want to know, who are you? Who is Alex? So in a nutshell, tell us who you are, please. A nutshell is going to be an interesting way to... But actually, before I answer that question, I wanted to share with you that, yeah, this, this whole podcast in general... Actually, we, we can talk about that maybe later, but just to give you a quick intro I mean, or to the podcast, it's been a labor of love. I really have been enjoying myself. It's been kind of building the plane as I fly it. Just started off just doing it, just said, you know, the, the best way to start is to start doing it and then figure out how to adapt it and make it better. And because I don't like talking about myself so much, I've thought the easiest way to have a podcast was to interview other people. So this episode might be a bit awkward for me, but I'm going to do my best because I'm not so, I don't want to say reserved, but I'm, I'm definitely keep to myself a little bit when it comes to talking about myself. I don't like to boast or, or talk too much about myself, but I'll do my best. I promise I'm here to do that. So to answer the question, why why am I here? Uh, what do I do? This is a question that I don't quite know how to answer or how far back to go. So I'll start at the beginning of when I was growing up with my parents. My dad was a computer engineer, actually electrical engineer. And he brought home one of the very first personal computers you could ever buy on the market. It was called a Timex Sinclair. And you had a cassette tape to, to as a hard drive. It had like 4K memory. It was really awesome and simple. And my brother and I just got enthralled by it. We actually had to build a schedule that after school, you know, who on which day for how many hours each of us could work on this little device and just, you know, Pong and all those original games. So it was pretty early on in my, in my life where I realized that computers was going to be a big part of my life. I wasn't sure if it was going to be a career, of course, I was too young to think about that, but I knew that computers was going to be it. Fast forward a couple of years, I went to schooling all with a focus of computers. So McGill Engineering, which is a pretty, McGill University rather, in computer engineering was one of my, uh, the only thing I wanted to focus on. And I actually was not accepted in my first application. They accepted me to chemical engineering, but not computer engineering. And I was so sad when I had that news. And my parents looked at me and said, you know, you can actually appeal this decision. And that was the first concept, the first time I ever heard of a, an appeal process. And sure enough, I wrote a letter saying, you know, I, for these reasons, I believe I am worthy for the program and I was accepted. So that was a pretty cool moment in, in life. 
And then, um, yeah, I started basically my first job, first six years. I was a software engineer. I was actually building code for hard-coded um, processors, like 16-bit microprocessors, voice over IP type stuff. Really, really, really geeky stuff. And I actually was, I loved it. I actually had a thrill writing code and seeing it work. And this is the early aughts, I'm guessing? It is. Yeah, I mean, this is basically C language at the time. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because C language was, the fa- was fast enough to be able to work on these kinds of things because these were really real-time processors. It was microtransmitters, point-to-point microwave systems, for example. And then in 2003, I was introduced to a CRM. It was a Siebel CRM at the time, which was really, really popular. Is that PeopleSoft? No. Siebel CRM okay. now is owned by SAP. And I'm not even sure if anybody mm-hmm. or any organization out there actually uses it anymore. Uh, but it was the big boy in, in the in the scene at the time. And then, uh, so I, I, I adopted that pretty quickly. And then 10 years ago, I was introduced to Salesforce. And then I made the switch ever since and, and things have been growing and growing. So that kind of brings us more or less where we are today, but I'll I'll stop there for as an origin story. Yeah, I just pulled up the um, Timex Sinclair because that is such a walk down memory lane where you're using cassette tapes and... Um, and plugging into a computer. This is pre-monitor, or I mean, a TV, right? It was pre-monitor. TV, yeah. and it was yeah. such a oh in such gosh. a way that the the cassette tape was that if you had various programs on the cassette tape, if you wanted the third program, you actually had to wait for program one and two to kind of scroll past in a play mode before you can get to the third program. So imagine if it's like five or six. It's just it was such a painful, but it, it, you know, this is all this was brand new. It right, was yeah, cutting edge. That's all there was, yeah. Wow, I mean, any uh, like that's. <laughs> That makes MS-DOS look efficient. Like anything that can do that is like really, really something. So yep. yeah, that's amazing. Um, wh- one other question. You seem to have known what you wanted to do like right away in life. That's true. And as someone who has been like stumbling backwards into what works for me, I'm really curious about that. What was, what was the drive? Like, when did you know, like, this is a thing for me? Um, or was that partly just discovery and you were like, I started someplace, but what, what was that process? Yeah. Like I mentioned, computers was, was for sure an element of my life. It was going to be an element of my life. And I remember having, I was lucky enough that, um, my first summer job, I was actually doing some software programming for an engineering company. My, my dad had a lot of connections. So I was fortunate to him, thankful to him that I was able to get these great opportunities and not have a McJob. But I remember actually surrounding, surrounding myself with all these engineers and all the engineering jokes that they would crack. And they, they were just so like dad jokes, for lack of a better word, just really geeky, really anti-funny, but they found it hilarious. And I, it was at that moment where I wasn't quite sure whether this was going to be my career path or not, but there was just so much fun into it. There was so much thrill in, in coding and building things and, you know, just typing, converting text to actually something that works and does something. To me, I just it was clear that this is what I wanted to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Digital, solving digital pu- puzzles every day, right? Absolutely. And, and, the, and the dad jokes to go along with them. But that, uh, yeah. I, can, I can see the attraction there. And it's also very binary in the sense of it's not based on emotions or gray feelings. It, it's, it works or it doesn't work kind of thing. And I really like that kind of absolute certainty in the workplace. The, the human element, of course, has to be a, a big part of it, as you know. But just the idea of 
if you do this properly, this will come out and, and it'll work or it won't work. And you have to do then make the necessary changes to make it work. I found that kind of uh, certainty and results was very therapeutic for me. Yeah, there. I like the accountability of it works or it doesn't. And, and you're right, I, f- I focus in my work a lot on the human side. And one of the things I say is base code of humans is belonging and the base code of technology is all true false is accuracy based and i and and it needs to be that way like like it can't there's there cannot be fuzzy language in that nested if statement of, of binary code right so i think that's that's really interesting um next question podcasting so i love your podcast i'm curious how how did you decide okay i'm going to do this podcast and i'm going to focus it on you know uh agents of nonprofit and I think that's a spinoff on is that's a spinoff on Mar- Marvel. Am I right on that? Or am I- yeah, yeah. It's a derivative of Agents of Shield, yeah, which was a right. TV show that I, I liked for the first few seasons, but not so much toward the end. Yeah, the right end. with you, right there with you. Just got nuts. It yeah. did. Coulson was great in there the whole time, though. I felt like Coulson was amazing. So anyway, yeah, he was. I liked his character very much. So why a podcast? A few reasons. I mean, we're fast forwarding, obviously, a few years in the middle between these two stories, but the podcast was basically a way to, to do a few things. One is to meet really cool people in the industry, like yourself, you know, to be able to interview guests in my space, in the nonprofit world, in the technology world, and just have great conversations with them and learn from them. Then it's about getting them and their expertise and their knowledge and being able to share that with an audience. Uh, it is a type of marketing tool as well. It's it's a way for me to promote myself without being or feeling like I'm too markety or used car salesman type of thing. So be able to spread the word of what I do in some kind of indirect way, at least. And the last one is to practice speaking. This speaking has always been a challenge for me. Uh, I get very excited and I start swallowing my words and I don't pronounce certain words properly, which I'm sure I'm even doing on this particular episode and it's a, it's a constant struggle for me. I, I have to I have to consciously slow down and purposely pronounce my words carefully. And my wife always tells me slow down. Um, so it, it's a way to practice that as well. Uh, good on you. And I don't I don't think a lot of people know this, but I have I get pretty severe stage fright and camera shyness as well. Um, mm. And so I relate to that a lot. I, in fact, last year I took a, a, an online course on speaking called speak like a leader by Nasheen. And yeah, I, I totally get that. So, and I, and thank you for doing this podcast. I was one of your uh, guests last year and was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And really excited to see that that's happening. One more question about you. And then we're going to dive into the Salesforce world, but you're a digital nomad. And I think that there's, a, I have a lot of curiosity around that. I'm about to become an empty nester. And so for the first time in like 22 years, I'm looking at like an open-ended question and my, my work is remote. Um, so I'm curious, what is it like to be a digital nomad? How did you start doing that? You know, t- tell us more about that. This is definitely a, a passion of mine. So the origin of it, goes back quite a few years, actually, in that my the mother of my mother, so my grandmother and her husband, traveled to more than 160 countries in the world. And they have like this little doll collection. They collected these wooden dolls with the authentic traditional dress from each of these countries, which my mom now has in a huge showcase at home. 
So I think I've got the travel bug in me from a very young age. Uh, my parents travel quite a bit as well. And I started traveling late in life. I was only around 23 or 26, actually, when I started traveling. But once I started traveling, it was very difficult to slow me down. Constantly looking for cool places to, to visit, you know, all, all around the world. I mean, at this point, I'm more than 50, close to 55 countries, six continents. And it was maybe, ah, crap, maybe 20 years ago now. It's, I'm looking back, I'm getting old. So about 20 years ago, I realized, even though I love Montreal, because I was born and raised in Montreal, the Montreal winters really do suck. They're, they are not pleasant. Oh my gosh. Yes. And these days it's, it's like lasagna where it's just rain and snow and rain and snow. And so about 20 years ago, I, I set off on this mission to figure out where else could I live? Where, how else can I find a place to live outside of Montreal during the winters? And it, it took 20 years and a long, a lot of wrong paths and a lot of backwards paddling and, and stops and whatnot to find the, you know, the right country the right city, the right life partner, the right career to make all of this happen. And it finally, it was actually, this is the first year I can say I've fully accomplished it. I was doing it in the past too, where I would spend winters away, or there was one point where I did a backpack trip alone around the world for two years, um, which is a whole different conversation we could have as well. Oh my gosh. I'm like yeah. so wanting to get into that. No, no. Right. Different conversation. But yeah. <laughs> So the idea is it's just setting up a lifestyle now where, so I chose Spain, by the way, I chose a small town in the south of Spain as a second home. Uh, we bought a place here. It's a pre-construction ready uh, in a few months from now. We bought it last year. And the idea is uh, we'll be spending six months in Montreal and uh, six months in this small town next to Malaga. And yeah, just, just kind of bounce back and forth with a few other cities sprinkled in between, plus other trips, you know, around North America and Europe when possible. I love Malaga. Good choice on that. I've um, some very dear friends that live right off the square in Malaga. So we got to stay oh, with wow. them. And that's amazing. What are the, can I just one more question about it? what are the mm -hmm. rules of dig, being a digital nomad? Like, is that I, sometimes I'm like, it's in a van, a nice van down by the river, you know, to quote Chris Farley, but like, what, what are some of the actual rules for it? I don't think there are any rules. I mean, okay. the lifestyle that I chose was six months, six months, and we're, we okay. we own the apartment in Montreal. We own the apartment in Spain, or we will, we will own the apartment in Spain. But there's no rules. So you could be, to your point, a van down by the river. It doesn't need to be even a nice van. The idea is just spending some portion of your, of your year somewhere else. So, I, mm -hmm. I mean, I still consider Montreal to be a home base. Mm -hmm. I, eventually, I imagine I'll consider Spain to be a true second home. But the idea is just to be able to get out of your regular routine, not to have the same daily or weekly routine year over year, week over week, or week over week, year over year, and and just have a predictable life. I, I wanted a bit more uncertainty. I wanted a bit more variety. I wanted a bit more spice and and pushing your comfort zone, which I think is easily accomplished. All of that through through traveling. I and I feel like travel is a. I feel like it's a personal development cheat code, mm. right? Like it just. There's something about seeing how much difference there is in the world translates into a, a different comprehension of ourselves and a recognition that what we do isn't ultimate or something. Do you find the same? There, there are so many lessons learned. I mean, there are differences, but I would say 80% of us across the entire world are exactly the same. Mm. It's only that 20% that's different. And there's a lot of excitement and I believe in the, you know, variety is a spice of life quote, 
but I think that that 20% is sometimes overemphasized where we're mm-hmm. actually more significantly more similar than we are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, seeing different cultures and, and, and absorbing that 20% is absolutely lovely. And you're right. The idea of, of pushing your comfort zone constantly and you look back after five years or whatever number of years of doing this, you realize how much you've accomplished, how much you've grown as a person. You become more confident. You become more resilient, more self-reliant. You just know you can do things. You know, random acts happen and you're just like, I got this. I've done this before. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll get through this kind of thing. And you know, losing your money, losing your wallet, getting robbed, all these kinds of experiences will, will get you to that point. Yeah. Okay. There's a whole second episode. <laughs> It is. And who is Alex around uh, around travel stories, I can tell. So, okay, I want to switch gears here a little bit. You were going along in life, uh, do, doing your computer thing, and then you hit your first CRM in Siebel. And at some point, you found Salesforce. Um, no, it was in 2013. Um, you found Salesforce. How'd you find it? And what drew you to that platform specifically? Yeah. So 2013. So right before that moment, starting in Siebel, I was a developer. I was making that transition from a developer doing C programming to development in Siebel. And then there was a one moment where I started working my way up to becoming a business analyst and then an architect because there were certain people in the organization at my client's office that just saw the potential in me of, of, of being able to add that human element to it, that it wasn't just techie stuff. It's actually making sure you respond to the customer's needs you listen to them, you actually have great solutions to it. So um, so I was a architect in Siebel at the time I, I switched over to Salesforce. And the way that happened was that it was another client, a very large media company in Canada, who was transitioning from Siebel to Salesforce. And then I had a, a contact there, a good friend of mine, who said, Alex, you know, you need to come and help us with this transition. And that's basically where I picked up Salesforce for that media company. But as fate would have it, at that same time, there was a small nonprofit in Montreal who was considering a CRM upgrade. They were actually using an old Microsoft Access database that I had custom built for them at that moment. And they were looking to some kind of web app to replace it. And I said, well, listen, Siebel is great. You need to really consider this. Free licenses for nonprofits. It's a no-brainer. And they ended up going with it. So my first two clients of Salesforce was that media company and then a nonprofit. And then to answer your question of why Salesforce, I mean, what was attracting to me was that it was cloud-based. It was one of the first, there's not many people that know this, but at that time uh, when Salesforce first started, it was one of the first organizations that had a cloud, a fully cloud-based solution. Everything else before that was on-premise or on-prem, which means you need to have your own servers, your own uh, security, your own people maintaining this thing. It was really, really costly. And Siebel was one of those things versus Salesforce, which is more of the rental subscription model. The SaaS model was one of its first of its kind, at least one of the largest of its kind at the time. And that was really cool to be able to, to use something that's so powerful, so advanced, and yet just pay you know rent on it instead of having to spend tens of thousands of dollars on servers and so forth. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. And this is one of the one of the misnomers in um, nonprofits using Salesforce is that Salesforce talks a lot about trust. And I feel like nonprofits, when they hear that, they think societal trust, they think organizational trust. And I think what's missing there is that at the time that Salesforce came out, 
there was a huge amount of mistrust about anything that was completely online. And so from day one, Mark Benioff had to defend why and why people could trust the uptime of this. Whenever you need to log in, it will be available to you. You can trust that 100%. And so I think it's really critical to understand that history so that when you see, you know, Salesforce is built on trust, that trust is in uptime. And at first, uh, you know, I, I used to be bothered by that, but that's actually really fundamental and critical to its history and what it is today. And it's almost taken for granted, but I think you worked in an era where that could not be taken for granted. Uh, and so you know just how important that how important that is. Putting your credit card into an online website was unheard oh of at the time. Just yes. unheard of. Just forget about it. You couldn't convince anybody to do it. So yes, trust, building trust that this is going to be there no matter when you need it. And in in full transparency too. I mean, they have a whole website, a whole web page, you know, showing your instance of your server in the cloud up and down. If there's any instance in, if there's any incidents. Um, so yeah, huge element of its success was uh, trust building. And I think people didn't even understand multi-tenancy at the time mm-hmm. or they would have, <laughs> because uh, everybody at that time, uh, there, it was all a PC world with, you know, and it wasn't even a, a multi kernel shell approach to, to the way that microprocessors were, were used for individual computing. So I think if people had heard that, I, you know, I think that they, so I think they buried the news on that. And as people got more and more comfortable with that, they started talking more about multi tenancy. The techies um, definitely cared about it, but like you yeah. alluded to, I mean, what matters most is what does it do for you, right? I think obviously Steve Jobs did it right by saying that the advertisement for the iPhone or the iPod, forget which, was basically a thousand songs in your pocket, right? They didn't yep. talk about the features or the, the yep. bandwidth or the, it was just, what does it do for you? And that's basically, I'm sure what it, the message was for most people. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really well said. Man, I can see the big billboard on that because I was living in the Bay Area at the time. And, I can, <laughs> and, and compare that to the Zune, right? Okay, so what do you love about Salesforce, especially Salesforce for nonprofits? Yeah, so Salesforce, I mean, it's been the number one CRM based on their own numbers and, and other numbers uh, published for numbers of years now. So they, they're really leading the pack. I think I know that they even superseded SAP in terms of cloud computing power and, uh, across the world. So the ability for nonprofits to leverage and harness that that technology at a either free or a fraction of the cost is really impressive to me. You know, Salesforce has updates three times a year. It's constantly innovating, and uh, they give away to nonprofits ten free licenses. So if your organization has less than ten users, you're basically getting all of this power for zero dollars per month. And then any license you need beyond ten ends up being only about thirty dollars US per month versus. I forget what the exact numbers are these days, but it's close to $160 US per month per user, I should say too. So it has tremendous power. It, it, it has its history. It can connect to so many other systems. There's there's a lot there. It can be overwhelming. And and you know, some of the things I don't love so much about Salesforce is the fact that it, it, there is a learning curve, but and it's not, and definitely, and I promote this many times, even on the podcast, it's not the right fit for all nonprofits. But when it is, it's it's amazing. It it can fit and it can serve the needs of so many nonprofits and serve them so well that yeah, there's a lot more I can say. But I mean, that's the starting point. If you were to identify that one feature 
that you constantly come back to and see nonprofits make that journey. And it is a learning curve. And I like, I know, I know so intimately what you're talking about with that, but if there's one thing that you feel like this thing just helps people make that journey more quickly, what would you say that that one thing is? It's more of a concept. And I would say just having a truly holistic perspective on your constituents, being able to host all the data, all the interactions you have, all the campaigns they're part of, all the volunteering, all the services and programs, you can see all of it in one program. You don't need to have multiple uh, programs and systems and apps. It can all be in one. And that gives you a lot of power, a lot of reporting power. So yeah, just one single source of truth is extremely powerful for nonprofits. You can choose to not answer this question if you don't want to. Uh, It's totally fine. And we can head into nonprofits. But how has the recent restructuring and absorption of .org into salesforce.com, how has that affected your business or the nonprofits that you've worked for? Let's give some context maybe to people who aren't so familiar. So salesforce.org is the nonprofit side of things. And at one point, it was actually a fully separate entity. And then Salesforce bought them. And over time, they've been doing more and more mergers between the two um, divisions, let's call them. So now it's like even more than ever to the point where it's, it's kind of losing the salesforce.org side is kind of losing its identity, which is a shame because I, I kind of get it, but I don't because the, the needs are different. And there are other industries and verticals that Salesforce focuses on, but I find nonprofits, I would like to think that they're a special breed. I don't yet see, to answer your question, I don't yet see the benefits from a user perspective or end, end client. I'm hoping that there's going to be some down the road soon, but uh, well, I guess we'll have to wait and see on that one. In terms of business, though, it hasn't really impacted me. The thing about Salesforce is that usually you, you only buy the Salesforce license from them, and then you work with a partner like myself to help you implement Salesforce. Salesforce doesn't usually although they're changing that as well, offer too many um, what they call professional services to install it for you. So I'm usually brought in only once an organization has made that decision to say, yeah, Salesforce is the right choice. I'm not really part of the sales team in any capacity. Although there are sometimes I do make recommendations by far and large, the most of them have already made that choice. So by the time it reaches me, I already know what I need to do, or at least I know where I'm starting from. I don't have to worry about um, some of these acquisitions and mergers. Yeah, thanks. I um, I posted something on LinkedIn last week that was making the case that nonprofits are not a different industry than for-profits, but a different economic structure, that they have mm. inverted economies. And and I think that Tracy Kranzak calls it the, the impact economy, and I think that's the right way to think about it. There's a profit economy and an impact economy. Right. And you work with nonprofits, and so that's what I want to I focus on next. The impact economy is kind of your space here uh, with Salesforce. Why did you choose nonprofits? So as I mentioned, my first client was a nonprofit along with a media company. So I kind of fell into it. And I kind of knew because my father was actually volunteering at that organization. So my father, I'm I'm very thankful to my father for many things. He's opened up a lot of doors for me in my life. So he was volunteering at that organization. He was the one who even helped me build the initial Microsoft Access database for that nonprofit and then opened the door for me to propose Salesforce as an alternative to what they were considering. So I kind of fell into it, but I, like many others and many others I've interviewed on the podcast, once you've fallen in, it's very difficult to get out because you don't want to. 
And I kind of put it this way in that I can go out and I can plant trees, you know, all day long and try to help the environment, help the community that way. Or I can take my tech skills and my knowledge and I can help organizations that plant trees and make them better, faster, stronger. So I can amplify my impact significantly by doing that as opposed to, you know, being in the field myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, I think that's more powerful than we realize. I think that the ability to multiply the effects of impact through technology are really powerful. Obviously, I mean, that's what I do as well. So <laughs> I think, I hope you're right, because if you're wrong, so am I. So there we go. Um, and what does that help look like? So you're amplifying these impacts, you know, you know, either that's day-to-day, like what does your day-to-day look like? Or when you're working with a new client nonprofit, you know, what does that, what's the engagement look like uh, for you? To give a bit of context, the, the podcast that I do here is really for fun. Like I said, there's no incentive financially to do it. Most of my work does come through Salesforce projects. And either I'm doing a, a, it's like two or three things that I normally do. One is just advising either nonprofits or other Salesforce agencies on how to be uh, better. So it's like more of a coaching, mentoring, advising type of role. Or I'm doing project oversight, and that helps a lot where it's a very large nonprofit. They might have already their implementation team, and they basically want someone at the helm of the wheel just to making sure the ship doesn't go off the cliff. And then the third one would be actually implementing projects within Salesforce. So either people moving from an old system into Salesforce or Salesforce no longer works for them and they need kind of an overhaul, a refresher, I can come in and then get hands-on and uh, upgrade them, so to speak. Yeah, those are the three main ways that I help. If you were to, thank you for that. If you were to give a nonprofit that's, that is, you know, in or thinking about becoming part of Salesforce, if you were to give them one tip on working with a consultant like yourself, what would you say they may not know, but that if they did, it would make the engagement work better for them? Not all consultants are the same. So you, it's very important to find the right consultant for the organization because anyone, any, not everyone, but a lot, a lot of people, too many people, let's say, claim to know Salesforce and be good at it and then come in and just make a big mess of things. And it is very easy to make a big mess of things. You need to know what you're doing. You need to have the battle scars. You need to know best practices, things to do, what things not to do. Because as someone once said, I mean, it, it's, with great power comes great responsibility. And Salesforce, by being so powerful, there's a lot of ways you can do things. There isn't a, a right way to do things or a Salesforce way. It's more like, how do you make sure you're coloring within the lines? So picking the right uh, consulting agency or consultant to help you is a critical factor. And obviously, there's many ways of figuring that out. References, past experiences, asking the right questions. I mean, we can we can deep dive into that, but the, it's... That is the single most important factor because that consultant will definitely uh, make or break the project. Yeah, I think that's so important to understand. I'm really glad that you have that you share that perspective. That it's not just about the choice of which platform; it is about the application of that platform as it applies to your context. And the translator on that will be that implementation partner. Yep. And so if they are inexperienced or don't understand you or don't understand nonprofits, that's where, that's where you think, see things like a custom object called donation, right? Which, <laughs> right. Oh, no. uh, right. Exactly. Or person accounts. Right. Um, so I think that's, I think that's really, really well said. And 
if you were to help nonprofits, now I know that this is not a marketing tool for you to get clients, but I, I am always wanting to see clients work with great consultants. So what type of clients should look at you? Nonprofits, obviously, what size, you know, what would you say? Yep. This is, this is who I should work with, or you should, should look at me if you fall within this kind of persona. I'm fortunate enough that at this point, I'm able to choose my clients as much as they're able to choose me. So for me, what, what the nonprofit does, what their mission is, what they're trying to achieve is really important to me. I want to make sure that I can, that their message resonates with me, that I can, you know, see myself helping and wanting to help them. These days, they tend to be on the larger side as well, just because it seems to be a better fit for Salesforce in general, but also because I do have quite a few years of experience now that I'm, by being senior, I'm able to have rates that are usually a bit higher than the average. So there has to be the budget for that as well. Large can mean a lot of things. Like help me, like how many staff and what annual revenue size does that end up looking like? There's no hard number, but let's say 5 million and up would be a good starting point. Um, The number of people doesn't really matter. The size of the change that they're trying to make, if it's a simple change, Mm -hmm. if you can get, you know, an administrator to do it, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to be overqualified for the job. If you're yeah. looking for transformational change, you know, the, someone where th- that can guide you through a very complicated project, uh, hold your hand, make sure we get through it together kind of situation, uh, and knowing that you can rely on, upon that person, that's obviously a better fit for me as well. Yeah. Alex, thank you so much. This has been great. Where can people find out more about you? Well, you can listen to the podcast, obviously, but I guess if you're hearing this, you already are. So to find more about my services, I, my company is Dryad Consulting, D-R-Y-A-D, Consulting. And that's basically a nod to my childhood. I used to play Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid and World of Warcraft on the computer. So a Dryad is a mythical creature that I just, I thought, and the name was pretty cool to me. Aside from that, I actually build and have been building a tax receding app for Canadian nonprofits using Salesforce. That space is really limited at the time. There's only, at this moment, there's only like two main players. And I've built something now that I'm promoting more and more. I actually got some great news right before this uh, podcast recording. One of my first uh, customers has signed on potentially for a very long period of time, which I'm completely emotional about and super happy about. So uh, that is a Dryad Receding. So uh, same thing, G-R-Y-A-D, receding.com. And then also as a way to give back to the community, to, to the Salesforce community and to consultants like myself, I started a newsletter or an email list. It's been quite a few months now. I do it uh, weekdays, so five days a week. And that is uh, the good enough consultant. So I like to think of myself as you don't need to be perfect. You need to be good enough and, and therefore try posting some of my experience, lessons, funny stories, and a bit about how to be a digital nomad on that, on that email list. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And I love, I love the idea of better is best, right? And I think that that's really, really important to, to go for. So, um, thanks for that as well. And thanks for joining me today. Oh, but Tim, before we go, please, because you were such a gracious host, I would love for you to mention what you do and, uh, the human stack a little bit. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm CEO of an emerging brand called The Human Stack, and we really focus on the human side of technology, especially for nonprofits. And I am just releasing for really small nonprofits uh, that have between 5 and 15 staff a program called Digital Driver's Ed for Small Teams. 
You can go to humanstack.com and find that there. And uh, we're really pricing that at a level that small nonprofits can afford, fold into their budget and really help that digital volunteer who is working in that nonprofit to get the kind of guidance they need to help shape their organization's digital culture. I love that word, voluntold. Thank you. Yeah. All right. That's it for today. I am Tim Lockie, and I hope that you will join me in the next Agents of Nonprofit. Awesome.